You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the For Love of the Land Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All right, welcome, guys. This is Adam here. Matt's here. And we have guest, Mr. Casey Morgan. Casey, thanks for coming on. Hey, good to be here, guys. Should be fun. Land manager extraordinaire. That's right. Uh, and so coming off this week, we've been all over. Uh, but recently we were at <clears throat> the Missouri State Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever State Banquet. Yep. And state, yeah, state meeting. We actually uh, we presented there on conserving habitat and our heritage through land management. Sounds like a lot, but really it comes down to ways to get more people involved in the outdoors by land management. And so that's what this podcast is about. Um, we brought Casey along because he's got an interesting backstory, um, as in kind of uh, as myself and Matt included, at one point in our life focused entirely too much on one specific species and really now stepping back, um, Casey comes from a, I'll let him explain it. But uh, now we all three really look at habitat and land management probably more than the actual hunt. And uh, this presentation Matt and I built uh, is kind of probably a little bit what you're not expecting as far as... I would say would open some eyes and shock some people as to some of the things that are in here. For sure. That was the point, That was. Uh, We wanted to go to a Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever convention. Yep where we were probably looked at as deer guys and hopefully break some barriers and show people that we're way more than just hunters, farmers, but more a whole list of things that you could categorize as if that's what you wanted to do and how we can use those types of uh, stereotypes, if you will, to use angles and, and the way we explain what we do on the land to bring more people to see what exactly we do and hopefully join us in the fight for land conservation. Good, bad, or, or indifferent. Right now our society wants to label everybody and everything. And that, that can go in lots of different ways, but we're to keep it um, tuned into this conversation. But there's a lot of labels out there that I think a lot of people can fall under and fall under multiple, but they all relatively do the same thing. And that's where this comes into, hey, we're all land lovers. We all care about what's happening out there. We might have a different emphasis, but truly the the root of it all comes back to managing the land and its resources and the different resources out there. So, Casey, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> about myself. Can you hear me all right in this deal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sweet. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> there we go. So, I guess... <clears throat> My background 
From a deer perspective, I did a lot with game recovery and tracking deer. Started my own business with uh, bloodhounds tracking deer. And that kind of jump-started me into the outdoors. Now I started hunting when I was going with my dad when I was 9, 10 like many right. of us um but and you're from wisconsin i'm from wisconsin i'm from north central wisconsin wapaka county uh, iola wisconsin actually and uh start grew up hunting there, there there was a small small like roar in wapaka county right there <laughs> definitely in iola bow hunting capital <laughs> iola! bow hunting capital no! of the world <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um started hunting there and then uh <clears throat> Basically, what jump-started my career into the outdoor side of things is was uh, tracking deer with bloodhounds and uh, bloodhound deer trackers. And then from there, um, was a land manager for a couple properties in central mm-hmm. Wisconsin. And then uh, ended up getting hired as an outfitter out in uh, northeast Ohio with Rick okay. and Ridge Outfitters. And uh, so from there, um, basically working with deer and deer hunting... Just- took off from big focus right there on yep. whitetails yes and i think what's interesting and kind of to jumpstart this whole podcast is that when you're an outfitter your main priority is getting deer on the ground mm-hmm. and that's your sole focus yeah and i think and this is not to knock outfitters they're you know it's great and it's a great opportunity for a lot of people sure but you're so swamped with clients and and i think that a lot of times it's tough to keep up the land management side of things when your sole focus is just getting deer killed. Sure. Yeah. So, and and it's a it's a battle. Obviously, in the off season, you work your butt off trying to you know keep that up and improve your properties that you have. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, you don't own all your properties. Yep. And the majority of the time, you're leasing up large tracts of land to get clients on. And so, it's pretty restricted from that manner of what you can yeah. do. And I think that's one that's an interesting point because there's a lot a lot of times I, I I don't know what are your thoughts on give me a ratio percentage of outfitters and how much land they own versus how much land they lease Oh it's got to be I would guess the majority of outfitters is 90 to 10%, you know, 90% of the land is stuff you're leasing up. Yeah. Just because if you're going to try to do it reasonably in in somewhere around 30, 40, 50 clients uh to own enough acreage to support that amount of hunting pressure, it's Oof. it's pretty tough. Yeah. And then also, you know, you have to make money somehow. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty so, important. So when you when you own a tract like that, obviously you know how land prices are and things. So um, leasing land becomes very important. And obviously, when you lease land, there's usually some limitations that accompany that. Mm-hmm. Not always, but kind of feels sometimes. like you'd be behind the eight ball. I mean, uh, the, I, my hats off to the people that that manage to have repeat clientele where they're killing big deer or they're whatever it is, they're they're killing a lot of pheasants or a lot of quail because you really are limited on what you can do, but then you still want to have similar results to what year people are expecting. Right, right. It, it is. It's it's a tough thing to do, and it's a tough tough way to keep people happy for sure. <laughs> but um, you can learn a lot about, you know, getting deer killed you know just mm-hmm. setups stand sets <clears throat> camera placement all that because you either learn or you fail right right you know it's not your like yourself where you can go out and afford to sit an entire season and or not be successful miss opportunities yeah. and whatnot yeah you know you need to have your clients on deer or else you're yeah. gonna have unhappy clients and your business isn't <clears throat> gonna be very successful and as we all know weather 
plays into a humongous part of success, and that's an incredible variable that is way out of anyone's control. So it, it is a very tough game, I'm sure. It is. It is. But I learned a lot, and uh, it was very helpful from a stand setup, food plot placement, you know, very vanilla, just scratching the surface of what habitat land management, deer hunting truly is mm -hmm. as a circle. But um, I learned a lot doing it, and it was very helpful. Right on. Right on. Oh, so awesome. That's a good. That's a good uh, starting point from a perspective, you know, that you can bring into the to the rest of the conversation. So, Casey, you're probably aware of all the different types of land users, land lovers. There's a lot of them. You probably heard a lot of them. Of course. <clears throat> sorry, we're we're going into our presentation now, and anytime you have a, a point, feel free to jump in. So. Types of land lovers is was one of our first slides here. We've got conservationists, a person who advocates conservation, especially of natural resources. Environmentalist, uh, one concerned about environmental quality, especially of the human environment with respect and control of pollution. Naturalist, one that advocates or practices naturalism. A hunter, one that's seeking uh, or one that searches for something. Obviously, you instantly think of like deer hunter, pheasant hunter, whatever. Uh, preservationist, one who advocates preservation as a biological species of historical landmark. A farmer, a person who cultivates land or crops or raises animals such as livestock or fish. Um, a gardener, a person who tends and cultivates a garden on a pasture or for a living or as a pastime or for a living. So that's just, I mean, there's other types, but these are the main ones that come to mind. Obviously, conservationist is a person, you know, that a lot of times hunters call themselves conservationists because they buy tags or whatever. We've shared it on the podcast before. That doesn't cut it anymore. Just to say that there's more to it. Uh, conservation is one of the most practical, or one of the most used ones. Environmentalist. If we're talking stereotypes or grouping people, automatically environmentalists, you think somebody who's a tree hugger is right. what you would think. Um, but by that definition, I would qualify as an environmentalist. Right, so would I. And a naturalist, one that uh, advocates for uh, or practices naturalism, which is what we talk a lot about. So Check on I that would, box. I would qualify for all those. As would I, definitely. And so... You know, uh, when somebody tells you you're, somebody comes to you and you start talking about land, they're like, well, I'm an environmentalist. Immediately, if you're a hunter, you're like, oop, tree hugger, I'm out. Correct. But it, by definition, we all probably have the same interest. Definitely. And so the the meaning of but this. Uh, even if you don't have like the exact <clears throat> same interest, you have common ground for sure. That's that's irrefutable. Like you know that you can talk about something and you're like, okay, I, I I believe that. Like I'm on the same page as you. Mm -hmm. We're okay. there. And so as a hunter, which a lot of our audience are, are hunters, um but at the same time uh, I would I would be curious how many people that are on our podcast label themselves as environmentalists before they label themselves a, as a hunter. And uh by definition, I would say I'm all of those, uh, minus the gardener who tends and cultivates a garden as a pastime or for a living. Uh, and that's just because of my current situation. I'll be a gardener at some point. I've been a gardener in the past, but uh, 
And I don't know if Food Plotter would. We're, we're going to have a weedy garden as much as we travel. I was yeah. just about to say that. I have a garden at home, and yeah. that's what it looks like. That's it. <laughs> You're it's, a weed farmer. It is. I, and not the California or the California or Colorado no, weed farmer. No, the opposite of that. <laughs> the <laughs> ones that are complete waste. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, that's kind of – that's our first slide because we want people to start thinking about um, who they are, what they qualify as, and then think about the other side. Like – if if there if you're a conservationist and and you see this a lot in conversations, but conservationist preservationists are are kind of different. They're opposing sides. One looks at it from managing the land with active management. A preservationist looks at it with a kind of a mindset of saying let nature control itself. And Matt and I have talked about this even while we built a slide. Um, Preservation in my, or actually, we talked about it today. Yep. Preservation in my eyes is a great mindset, I'd, but with I'd, I'd love for that to be applicable. I I, w- I would as well, but it's 2019, and we can't, in my opinion, can't step away and say nature's going to fix itself. We're We've already in, done too much damage. We're in the post settlement. Yeah, correct. We we've changed things. Our land use is way way different from the way it was way back then. And if, so these disturbances. If I'd have changed. rode up on a pony in 1809 or 1808, I want to be preservationist. I would have been a preservationist. I would have been like, time out, time out, time out. Like, whoa, 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 whoa! Hold back the wagons. Let's just enjoy yeah. what we have. That Let's gold, stop shooting all these, gold all these buffalo. Um, but now, it, fast forward, present day, I I would say I have more of a conservationist mindset. Correct. I'm I'm here to manage and remove invasive species and try to restore what was here. Um, from a naturalist point of view. From a naturalist point of view, um, and at the same time, I'm being a conservationist. But at the same time, I'm going to be a hunter and a farmer. Yep. And so that's where we're headed in this in this podcast. So, um, basic biology principles and why. Um, Matt, would you care to yeah. explain? So basically. As we as we talk about different terms and, and labels that we can all fall under, it's important to talk about what are the biological principles that we're going to manage under. And for us, and in, in from a consulting standpoint, you know, there's there's three things that honestly a lot of our recommendations and suggestions fall under or are dictated by these three things. And they're not complicated. Basically, sunlight is one of them. Managing the amount of sunlight for different expression in native seed banks. The second one is time. Succession is the progress and change in which vegetation type, structure, maturity, annuals versus perennials. They all change. So over time, we see things develop and change with the amount of sunlight that it gets. And then disturbances <coughs> are natural. We manage renewable resources, and they have been adapted to natural disturbances. So... Those three things make up our recommendations as basic biological principles, and they're super important the way that we're going to manage a landscape. Again, we're going to use a combination of all those three to determine what the best tool to use to be able to manage the landscape appropriately. So a couple of key points on that, that that come to mind. Sunlight being king. That's, I mean, if you were to sum up our consulting business in one slide, that's, oh, don't give it away. that's pretty much it. <laughs> Like, we're looking to manage sunlight, whether we're in Wisconsin or, or Georgia. Um, because it's going to give a different expression. And we're looking at time and seeing just how far progressed we are from early secession. Um, 
on the on the land and then distur- and what kind of disturbances we can use to replicate nature and make make the land more productive now there's a lot of stuff that goes into that but uh, that's really yeah. in simple terms and in, in a nutshell um our our consulting business looks at how to manage the land and make it more productive and most productive to the whole entire ecosystem whether that be a tiny little lizard a bird that migrates through or a white-tailed deer how can we make this as productive as possible restore pre-settlement landscapes because we believe that's what was most productive because of the amount of animals and the amount of species we had that occurred on that landscape and basically look at it and say we're going to restore that make it the most productive as possible and boom uh whatever whatever activity we recommend whatever plant we recommend native to that site it is benefiting the deer the birds the soil the air the water everything because this is a very key part of our consulting business we don't want to recommend something that's maybe benefiting the deer but completely but catastrophic them. for the game birds and that's a big part of what we do so yeah, i mean going off of that what you just said is that most wildlife fortunately for us the wildlife that we're managing for are not giraffes or some gigantic species of animal <laughs> so sunlight you know basically most wildlife will benefit from things our height or lower to Absolutely. the ground so without sunlight, you know, with large canopy, things like that, the wildlife just doesn't benefit if you don't allow sunlight to hit the floor or the forest floor. Uh, and how often, at what point in your life, as a as a guide, outfitter, whatever it is, at what point in your life did you realize that closed canopy forest was not benefiting? You know, it took till probably we met. Yep. I mean, quite honestly, mm-hmm. just because the rule of thumb for most hunters is food plots, food plots, food plots, sure. you yeah. know, and, and feeding them the candy side of things where you're going to kill them. Yeah. And, and obviously if you look at it from a, a different perspective, you know, you can't grow a food plot in a closed canopy forest either. No. So <laughs> great point. I like, you that. know, so, yeah. I mean, it, it took a little while just to realize how much benefit you can gain from allowing forage to be available for all game species or, yeah. you know, birds, all wildlife mm. um, yeah it can be just by allowing things to grow where they're not currently able to yes setting the clock back um when you going look right at back to time when you yes when you go to tick 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 clock starts trees grow from young young trees to medium-sized trees to tall trees tick 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 time goes on and as that ticking goes on and that hand around the clock goes you're either getting better or you're getting worse and if you're not doing anything and a natural disturbance is not happening whether you're a conservationist or preservationist a natural disturbance whether that be large herbivore grazing or fire being the two biggest ones tick 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 time goes on your habitat gets worse and you reach a point, almost a cap, to where it's bad. The damage is done. But it doesn't get much worse because it no. sets on bad. It kind of, it's a plateau effect, basically. Yeah. And the only thing that fix that, fixes that if you're not managing it is something the way nature manages is catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Whether that be disease, whether that be 
tons of ice, whether that be a tornado, a hurricane, and whoosh, the right hand of God swings down and and just catastrophic. Sets the tone for the next And he sets it back. Exactly. And then you go tick, 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 and we just progress to back to back to bad. And if you're not being managed, I feel we were called to be managers of the land. And if you're not managing it, it only it only gets worse, unless something catastrophic or some some major disturbance hits. And I feel like a great example of that is out west with fires. Tick 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 tick. Time goes on, and we have all these trees that grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And there's less stuff growing at the base at the at the forest floor. And it takes a monster fire to come ripping through to go whoosh, right back to more beneficial. And I, and I, and I would say there's a lot of documentaries that Nat, Nat Geo, documentaries, uh, other, other people that are putting documentaries out there talking about Western fires. And, and they don't talk highly of prescribed fires. So they don't even mention it. But they will mention that when the fires move through and it kills or it top kills a lot of these trees or whatever, there is a lot of new light that comes back and the animals benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I, what my hope is that when these disturbances of of catastrophic events happen, resetting the vegetation. I hope we have a mindset that gets reset at the same time. That actually, this is just a natural part of living. That needs to be encouraged and educated um, at these events. Not not all is bad. Hopefully, you know we we don't want to lose life or anything like that. But from a from a ecology standpoint from these basic biological principles that we go back to hey that's a good thing that is a good thing yes i'm going to regress to your uh, question that you have for me of when did you think about that or when did you learn or or realize the the benefits of you know opening up a closed canopy we were doing it by accident because in a deer hunter's mind you think Okay, I have a food source. We've accomplished that. Now I need to get deer bedding near my food source. Mm-hmm. So we would go in and clear and make cuts, and most times it was hinges mm-hmm. just because that provides immediate cover. Well, yeah. it, you never realized, holy cow, you're opening up the canopy, and lots of forbs and, and, and re- new regeneration starts to grow up, and that provides forage for the animals. Yes. You didn't, it, the, well, the concept, we were doing it, but the concept of understanding what well, the true – goal of it was was not there exactly and so that, we that just goes back it. to your your mindset of my goal here is for the cover for deer basically visual structure but right. now you're finding out oh my gosh it has all these other benefits to it that other people are gonna, gonna get excited about exactly which when you realize that totally changes your techniques and, and your locations of everything you know you start Great thinking point. a lot differently about where when and how you're gonna um apply these cuts in and different you know opening up the canopy into your farm mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so second slide of our presentation was teach and preach with enthusiasm i use the reference remember steve Irwin, the cro- crocodile hunter <laughs> yes i do definitely you remember how enthusiastic he was and so pumped up he would get about some simple stuff he was excited for sure and he got you excited i loved this show because you would watch it and it was just like man this is this is cool stuff. This I'm, is meaningful stuff. He's still famous, so he's still that, famous. That says something. You That's might, quite the legacy. <laughs> yes, you might definitely. not have cared about an alligator until you heard him talk about an alligator. Correct. Yeah. And so that's the kind if we're coming from it from a hunter, conservationist, whatever land lover category, stereotype, label you want to put yourself in, 
you got to bring people into the outdoors with enthusiasm. And so if you're a hunter, you don't bring a non-hunter into the outdoors by saying, hey, I'm going to shoot this, you know, we're going to take you out and you're going to shoot this big old buck. I think especially for guys that are listening that are trying to find ways to bring their wife into the outdoors because they own a piece of ground, they're trying to figure out a way to get her to enjoy it or your kids to enjoy it, you need to use probably a different approach. you got to find what their interest is and then lure them out there with it. And so doing it with enthusiasm, whether you're getting excited about planting wildflowers, planting pollinators, um, whether maybe your wife is one of them that is somewhat looks at it from an environmentalist standpoint. Maybe you're going out and you're cleaning it up and you're saying, hey, we're just going out and we're, uh, we're going to be planting these natives along a stream to try and uh, prevent some erosion to where there is no runoff of, of, a, uh, of the field to where the water's cleaner in our, on our farm. And so downstream the water's cleaner. And, and she goes, oh, that's really cool. I'd like to see that. Or maybe she's going out and looking at another thing you're doing on the farm. Got to find ways to bring new people into the outdoors. 100%. That's for sure. And, and with that, when you're teaching with enthusiasm, know your sources and know that you're getting information from the right people. Know that you're getting quality information and are sharing with enthusiasm the right things. There's a lot of bad information out there. I'll just say it that is misguiding people and misdirecting them. Um, they're, they're getting away from those basic biological principles and we're missing the boat and a lot of bad things are getting shared out there. So know your sources, stick to them, be energetic. People are going to test you, but know what you're doing and stand firm behind those facts and avoid talking absolutes. Like every time this happens, without a doubt, it's always going to be like this because it's not there's always exceptions, and we'll, we have tons of examples of that um, case by case. But when you talk like that, it tends to turn people off. Um, you know, you could say, in my observations, or I've seen this, typically it happens like this instead of, oh, every single time. Just like hunting. How many times we're out there like, oh, that deer walks this trail every single time. The next time you hunt it, he's going to be on the next one. He's going to be out of range. Or deer always come from that <laughs> side, and then yeah, they come from the other side. Like, they're so – the only thing – what is that phrase? The only thing uh, consistent is it's inconsistent. The only thing certain is that things are un- – yeah, something like that. Um, and so, like, for me, this right here is uh, – if you're asking us where we get our information, a lot of the times – it's gone backtracking, reading journals, reading pre, uh, pre-settlement journal, exploration journals to where we have a pretty doggone good idea of what was going on. And then a lot of peer-reviewed um, university research that, that has shown these results, not just an opinion of ours that has some sort of agenda behind it. Um, and so be cautious where you get your information, but when you do get it, this is something to to help bring people into the outdoors is the fact of it's the little tidbits, the little things that come out. If somebody's ever, any of our clients have ever hired us or listened to the podcast, um, a lot of them do, is those, they, they know the tidbits Matt and I throw out there. A lot of them don't have a darn thing to do with why we're there, but it's interesting stuff. And the same thing can be done for you on trying to bring people in the outdoors. Like... We were in West Virginia earlier in this year, and um, 
Just threw in a little tidbit about uh, Matt goes. You know John Denver. He was from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if he is. But Drove he there on a country it. road. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> you want to hear us sing that song to you? <laughs> I've heard it. <laughs> um, but the, the guy was interested in songbirds, and we were talking about you know restoring some riparian areas on the farm, and you know that's going to be the best use of of these acres. Uh, just just restoring back into a riparian area. Um, and it was red-winged blackbirds. Like, oh, I knew he was interested in, in birds and stuff that would be able to use and nest and stuff like that. So just send him a little link like that. And it's like those things, his goal is not to, you know, kill a Boone and Crockett red-winged blackbird, but he cares about it. And that's, you know, just those other little tidbits. That's going to go a long ways. And, and then he's going to know why, though, that, that riparian area is of value. It's not just, oh, well, Y'all said to do it, so I'm just going to do it. Well, no, it, it has significance to these animals, to these species. So connect everything together. Uh, soil to the roots, to the microbes in the soil, to the plants, to the grasses, the shrubs, the trees, the forbs, the animals, the insects, and the air. You mean you're not going to tell them the difference between soil and dirt? <laughs> I, I hope Casey, I, why don't you tell us I, the difference? I we, hope we, we I had know this conversation. the difference. I hope by now... If they've listened to this podcast even once, they they know the difference they because did. we've so, shared it. Because so they've much. wiped wiped dirt off their boots, but they've the soil dirt. is alive. That's right. That's it. it crawled off. It yeah. was alive. The <laughs> soil crawled off it. their boots. <laughs> Rule number one uh, <laughs> in in soils class for me in college, the very first thing you said is, "Rule number one." Soil is not dirt. I said it just <laughs> like that, and I thought, oh, I'm in for I'm a semester, a long here. semester right here. <laughs> yeah. Fifteen yeah. weeks. So in the slideshow, we talk about those four, those those list of all the different things. And the reason we do that is because each person that we meet, hunter, non-hunter, conservationist, preservationist, environmentalist, or somebody who wouldn't even have a clue what category to put themselves in, we can find with whether it be soil, plants, animals, air, water, whatever it is, we can find one of those or multiple of those to give them the tidbits, give them the information, give them the the inspiration to then be intrigued enough to get involved in the outdoors. And so we list out in each one of these slides, we won't cover all of them because this was an hour-long presentation. We're already almost 30 minutes in, Ooh. and we haven't even jumped into the real presentation. So soil. We talk about all the different things about soil, the little tidbits about um, soil. Healthy soil creates more life. Um, healthy soils create better food plots. So intriguing the, the hunters in the room and why a hunter should be interested in creating healthier soils um, instead of just going out and disking, plowing, disking, plowing, disking, plowing, not knowing what they're actually doing long-term effect. Um, healthy soils are the key to life. Uh, carbon in soil is better than carbon in the atmosphere. If we're trying to intrigue, um, the reason that one's in there is as a hunter, as a, as a land manager, planting food plots and you go to an environmentalist or somebody who's a non-hunter, and they look at you planting food plots, they may say, oh, you're just doing that so you can shoot my deer, shoot deer. But if you go to it with the approach of, you know, we're planting these food plots, but something we really enjoy is this was an area that was taken over with invasive species, so we started planting these food plots to try and provide 
supplements for the wildlife, both birds and and other wildlife. Um, we're utilizing no-till drill practices to conserve we're, soil moisture. We're, and, yes, and, and we're trying to control erosion to where they're like, oh, that's it seems like you're doing it a lot different than I thought. Mm-hmm. And then you got their respect. And so this is what, I mean, global warming is a then huge you show hot them the topic. picture of the 160. Yeah, I don't even know if you do that. So, Never show any pictures. Yeah, that's right. And that was a big part, and uh, we'll get to it later in the, in the presentation, but social media and the yes. interactions we have with yes. our pictures we post. So uh, just soil is one thing. Um, and then you talk about the roots. I mean, look at that picture, Casey. Have, look you, at s- the, have you seen a diagram like that before? This is non-natives versus natives. Great example of the different root systems. So, so like that's s- buffalo grass. It's a native warm season turf grass. It's only six to twelve, maybe a little bit taller, um, but Above it has ground. it has almost an eight foot root system. Yep. Um, we got prairie drop seed, which isn't much taller, and it's got almost an eight foot root system. One of my favorite the the blazing stars, whether it be rough or or prairie or. Um, whatever blazing star they can have a root system almost a 16 foot but then you look at a lot of our natives like we've got fescue turf grass which is a non-native cool season it's very popular across the country um, and it's only got about a 12 inch root system and you look at it from an erosion standpoint i mean you can drive down the highway down the interstate down the gravel road and you will see a median at some point with a non-native cool season that they've planted to control erosion. Now, does that make any sense? Right, right. Uh, we were that, in oh, Oklahoma just oh, last yeah. week, and they were planting, or they were laying out sod. Bermuda sod grass, a, a sod in Bermuda grass that's got a short little root system on the side of a bank. To retain of, soil at, at a three-to-one incline. That don't yeah. make any sense. And you look at pastures around this neck of the woods, highly erodible soils, there's erosion everywhere. Everywhere. A- every yeah. ditch. Because once you get out of the rocky Ozark Mountains or any of the rocky states and you get into the very fertile, very loamy soils, you'll see erosion. Oh, man. Big time. And especially if they're not using cover crops, especially if they're if they're overgrazing, and especially if they're planting turf grasses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and in a lot of places, it's all of the above. Yeah, and and we wonder why when it rains, we get chocolates going to the chocolate milk going to the gulf of mexico so roots i mean if if i'm a hunter and i'm talking about and i'm going to plant a bedding in a bag or or some sort of bedding crp native grass if i'm talking to another hunter i may say yeah i'm planting this stuff because it's awesome bedding if i'm going to a person that's a non-hunter i'm going to tell them Hey, we're planting all these native grasses because we know it's important for the land because they have much deeper root systems. There are native species to this area. There's not a lot of them around here, so we're just trying to restore what the native landscape was. Correct. If I go to an environmentalist, I'm going to say, "Yeah, we're planting these native grasses because and wildflowers because we know it's important to the pollinators, and uh, we know that it's it's improving the soil health and it's making erosion less uh, of a problem." And long-term, we're going to put more carbon from the air into the soil. And they're going to say, wow, that's really cool. But why are you doing that? You're like, oh, I'm just a hunter, and I'm really interested in improving the land. 
You don't have to tell them that it's for a bedding area. Right, 100%. It's not that you're trying to hide anything, though, either. It's that you are educated of the resources and of the value of your work that's happening on the land. That's simply what is being communicated and is truly the root of it. That's the common ground between the, these different groups or labels, whatever you want to say. That's the common ground. I love land. You love land. Well, here's what I'm doing to help it. What are you doing? Here's, here's the best advice I have to anybody listening who is motivated to bring more people in the outdoors. Know your audience. Yeah. Know what they know who they are and what their interests are and then pivot off of that interest and use something you're doing that might be of interest to them to bring them out. Yeah. So plants. 100%. Well, just going on with this plants deal and increasing bedding, increasing cover decreases predation. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty easy equation and no matter who you do you're talking to that's a pretty blanket deal whether whether it's an the biggest anti-hunter nobody wants to see a white-tailed deer or a bobwhite quail or and i'm just using game species because that's what i'm most familiar with or a wild turkey get taken down by a coyote or a fox or whatever preys on it and by increasing the cover you decrease those things and allow those animals to be healthier and and more protected yeah and not not only do you do you I wanna I wanna say that the ecosystem, I mean the the coyote, the bob the bobwhite, the red fox, the raccoon, the opossum, and I'm trying to be opossum. I, I'm trying to say it. <laughs> I'm trying to say it with the absolute best uh, politically correct terminology. But if you're planting all these species and you're restoring the landscape. You're, you're going to have species. more game species and non-game species, which means that the whole food chain is back should be starting to get back in in line to where It's a complete web. Yes, there's food for all of the species, both prey and um predators, but it's not in a Every deer is hungry. Every deer is in one in a herd going to one food plot, one crop field, and every evening you see a bunch of deer running around and you see a pack of coyotes trying to run down the weakest link. Right. Here here's the thing. If you have diversity across your landscape, what that means is that each individual link in this food chain has diversity within its own meal and f- an opportunity to get food. We look at the coyotes. They've got if they've got these natives, they've got mice, moles, shrews, everything from there to a rabbit um, to be able to consume. And same thing with those species. They've got what they need. It's not solely focused on one specific animal because we have monocultures planted everywhere. We've got diversity from top to bottom. So when we talk about plants, and if you notice at the top of each one of these slides, we have conservationist, preservationist, naturalist, hunter, farmer, gardener, and environmentalist all listed out. That's because that's the that's the group of people that would be interested in plants if 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 we're using the correct whatever approach with them. And that is the same all the way through for the people who can't actually see this slideshow. Um, so plants, let's talk about native plants. Native plants create better habitat for game and non-game species. That would intrigue a hunter. Um, plants, they're more, uh, the native pollinators or grasses, they're more aesthetically pleasing. So they're easier to look at. Um, what wife or what woman or child or, or even me, I mean, I would love to much rather see a, a, a landscape of native prairie, native prairie with flowers and grasses than 
than overgrazed whatever a dirt or a mud pit like we're seeing a lot of mm-hmm. places right now. <laughs> um, pollinator habitat. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that we could intrigue even environmentalists, preservationists, naturalists to go, oh, that's really cool what you guys are doing over on your farm. But if I'm talking to my buddies, I may say, hey, we're putting in this pollinator blend because there's a big government initiative right now to where they're doing a lot of cost share. And, and they they paid up to 90% or 80% to, to cost share this spot. Now we got great bedding and it's it's some of the best quail hunting we've ever seen. And you know what? I'm going to take my wife out there. We're going to do family photos around it. And they're yeah. going to love it because it's the coolest thing ever. So we're te- and this plants is a, is a great way to teach the next gener- generation the importance of sowing good seeds, uh, whether that be food plots or planting these native grasses um, or planting native flowers or even landscaping in your yard. It's a good opportunity to teach the next generation about planting and the importance of manicuring and helping uh, grooming a species from a young stage to an adult stage. Um, And then if we're talking about just to an environmentalist about the importance of diversity on plants and planting these, let's say I'm a hunter and I'm planting a pollinator, a pollinator blend because there's good government cost shares and I want to create better bedding. And this is the best way for me to do it and not break the bank. If I'm talking to environmentalists, I'm say, yeah, we're planting this pollinator blend because we want to help the, uh, the species that are struggling, the monarch butterflies, the native, the native, uh, pollinator, the native bees. And we're putting, because of this diversity and because of the root system, we're taking more carbon out of the air and we're putting it in the soil, which is, critical for global global warming and they're saying wow that's really cool i didn't know you were into that kind of stuff you say yeah i am if you ever want to see it come out to the farm (laughs) and come out uh, to your farm come out to my (laughs) farm yeah (laughs) and so we're trying to we're we're connecting everything together i mean we've got native grasses um so they're great for erosion control there's huge hunting opportunities, better summer grazing. So I'm trying to intrigue the cattle farmer now. And I'm saying, hey, have you ever thought about native grasses? They're pretty awesome. They're going to do much better for your summer grazing. And uh, he does it, and now you've got better habitat and more carbon in the ground. Uh, going to shrubs, I mean, well, this shrubs. This is something that you're going to hear from us a lot in the next coming I'm gonna say, shrub podcast is- and, and years because this is so critical and we've lost it we've lost the importance we've lost the transitional areas so you're gonna hear us preaching shrubs somebody told me the other day that the three layers of vertical he said three layers of vertical landscape and i'm like well that's a simple way of putting it but it's a pretty good illustration you've got short medium tall you've got grasses forbs Short stuff, everything head high down. You've got middle, which is shrubbies, uh, shrubs, young forest, kind of that mid-range. And then tall is trees. A lot of landscapes have short, tall, not a lot in between. And shrubs is that, going back to these, um, understanding the native landscape, pre-settlement. There was shrubs everywhere. There was all kinds of shrubs. There was plum thickets and um gray dogwoods or, or dogwood patches and and one of my favorites american beautyberry uh just everywhere but they're not they're not present much anymore because they get labeled as brush 
Yeah. And no, it's just brush. It's just brush the field, just go in there and clean it out. Yeah, and the and the sad part about it is, is you know, you watch, like, the majority of songbirds, you oh. know, they don't nest 50 feet in the air. No, oh, you know, man. And that's a, a raptor bird is going to be further up. And, yeah. You know, they're going to. They'll be right there on their eye level with when, the raptors. Exactly. And when, <laughs> I mean. And when hey, people, buddy, you want to get in this nest with me? <laughs> exactly. Come climb on in. <laughs> exactly. So it's cold. Come over and cuddle. People just think of habitat, and they just think of big timber forest all the time. And they don't How many realize. times have you heard the phrase, it's got big timber, so you know there's deer on it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, that's Too what many. the majority of Wisconsin is, is big block timber. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know. And the, the first thing I learned when I started hunting out of that state was – it's lonely Just up how <laughs> how tough it is in in a in a giant block of timber with not much food. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. you think, but as we talk about often, wildlife lives there because people do not. Yeah. Yes. You know, exactly. so because people don't venture into the deep dense forest very often, wildlife feels safe there. That's why they're there. You know, without that, they would be everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, but we our our landscape was was very fragmented. You know, we're talking about pre-settlement, and there was fire that ripped across large portions, numerous numerous acres every single year, and fire shaped that transitional area between landscape and mature timber, and that's where these shrubs were born. I mean, right. that's where they that's where they're at, and so we've lost that though, and you know, removal of fire. Um, I, I can't, <coughs> you brought up a great point. The songbirds, this is their habitat. We'll, we'll talk about a little bit later of the numerous songbirds that have lost like populations. We're talking 60, 70%. Have you ever in, seen in any of the one of those? Years. I have not. So they're, they're down South. So, uh, painted bunting is big thing in like, uh, Texas, Arkansas, even very Southwest Missouri. Um, I mean, what a beautiful bird. And then you've got my fa- one of my favorite shrubs, it. the American beautyberry. And American beautyberry is one of those, let's just talk about the benefits to the wildlife. It's great cover, nesting habitat for some of these ground nesting or close to ground shrub nesting birds. Um, the painted bunny has a pretty good correlation with American beautyberry because they have similar ranges. Um, you see that whole cluster of berries there. That's about the size of a golf ball, and it goes all the way up the stem. So there's tons of berries. Um, I think Mr. Blake Bird Hamilton food. shared that a lot of, that was really cool was the leaves actually have a chemical in it mm-hmm. to where it's a natural insect repellent. It's one of the yep. few species we have it's that have that. very aromatic. Sure. It's crushed. It's also great woody browse for deer during the winter months and even summer months. Mm-hmm. But um, – so it has so many benefits, um, and and it grows in pretty sh- like if you take a woodland setting, it's Semi-shade. you can scatter it through Very it, and you so. have tons of shrubs. So it's a really cool one. Um, once again, the beauty berry is one of those that is so beneficial to the wildlife, but it's great landscape. And I mean, look at the it's fragrant, beautiful. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful purple, bright bright purple berries that anyone would love. So then you've got trees. Obviously, trees is one of those huge popular ones. The big part of this one is, I think, when it comes to conservation, this might be one of the one of the things I could say is the most occurring 
debate between preservation and conservationist that I see. Timber management. An environmentalist. Conservation mindset, to me, I believe that timber should be thinned because the natural disturbance of fire is removed from the landscape, which was the natural process of thinning the timber. So the weakest survival of the fittest, the weak trees got killed by fire. Um, we don't have that now. So timber management comes in. Then that's a huge benefit to a landowner because now he can thin the timber to create healthier trees at the same time make some money. Mm-hmm. And so trees, but let's just talk about how thinning the timber helps them fight off, ward off disease better. There's a lot of peer-reviewed research out there that's showing that timber that's been thinned means that we have healthier trees. We have fewer trees, but those trees are healthier. Right. And at the same time, those trees that are left, if it's a, let's say it's an oak, they produce more acorns because they're no longer competing with their neighbor. Correct. It's like me. I, I I grew up very close to my brother, therefore I'm a lot skinnier because he took all the nutrients <laughs> from me. Um, and then you have, because you're thinning the timber, you have more habitat because you have a lot more diversity in the understory. That's uh, what your deal is. Your diet's not diverse. Diverse. That's you that's would right. pound pizza Maybe. three pound meals a day. Pizza and sunflower <laughs> seeds. <Yes. laughs> I need more broccoli in right. my diet. You need to yep. diversify. That's right. You actually want to talk about a um, very singular food-focused group is your brother. My brother is very much. If it's tan, so it's got to be fried, or it's got to be a potato for him to eat it. (laughs) It's the truth. He's a meat and taters kind of guy. I mean, if he varies outside of that, I will be shocked. southern Missouri of him. (laughs) (laughs) So trees, I mean, we have have more food. we got to stay on track, boys. we got a lot to cover in a short time to get there. as a hunter, trees, like we said, hunting opportunities. Uh, from a real estate side, trees being one of those things where it's like, oh, it's got timber on it. Okay, I, there's hunting opportunities. Well, there's huge hunting opportunities in Kansas, Oklahoma, where there are no trees. But, you know, trees are a selling point. By the way, that picture right there, that's the number three bur oak in Oklahoma. I love those trees. Animals, that's a big thing. To lure more people into the outdoors by saying hey do you want to come out with me this summer this july and watch some deer in a food plot and just see some cool stuff sure uh metal Everybody, everybody's cares about an animal it's got eyes that blink and a heart that beats that that sucks people into caring about them well a hunter can care about every single one whether whether they pull a trigger on it or not yeah uh, i think so a deer guy you guys that are and and i said this in presentation i'll say it again one of my biggest pet peeves, I have a bunch of them when it comes to land, but one of my biggest pet peeves is I only care about the deer. I hate that phrase <laughs> because that's like saying it's it's a very selfish statement because if you care about the deer, you'll also care about the camaraderie or the, the other animals that help benefit the deer. So if I'm, a, if I'm only concerned about the deer, how do I know I have optimal habitat for deer? Well, if you're in an area where there are native bobwhite quail and you're like, man, I'm seeing more and more quail. Well, we know we've done a pretty darn good job at the habitat because they're a lot more dependent on quality habitat than a white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer is very, very adaptive to the, to where they live. They live in the suburbs. They live in the rural areas. 
they spread from all uh, a long ways across the country, um, whether that be whitetails or mule deer or blacktail. It, it would be like a farmer saying, I just care about my crops. Or cattle guy, I just care about my cows. Well, you should be caring about your soil. and You should be caring about your grass because that's what grows your crops. I think uh, you've heard the phrase, a cattle farmer really isn't a cattle farmer. He's a grass farmer. Take that one step further. Well, a cattle farmer really isn't a grass farmer. He's really a soil farmer because he needs to improve the soil to grow more grass, to grow more cows or bigger cows. Same thing with crop farmer. Crop farmer needs to, to grow more crops. He needs to improve the soil health. Correct. And so, I mean, fortunately for us, the guy that just cares about the deer with a good solid management plan in place, he benefits everything without even trying, you know. Yes. Even if yeah. he takes the right steps to benefiting his deer herd, involuntary or not, you know, he, mm-hmm. he ends up helping the if, habitat overall. If he is a overall. cumulative, yeah. It, it basically, if that plan resembles and has everything built into it, that a whitetail needs 365, right. he's benefiting a lot of other Correct. species. Correct. So that's fortunate for us. <laughs> Although yes. it may sting you, Adam, it might it might just it, pucker it, you up a little bit. It, it, <laughs> al- it will always sting me because I'm like, well, you don't really mean it, so don't say it. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But So do you know what the definition I'll, – I'll share with you guys. The definition of habitat is the natural home or environment of an animal, plant, or other organism. And so – to me, I always look at habitat, and I'm like, it's more than just, like, if I say habitat management, which is kind of just one of those blanket statements, it comes down to more than just one one benefit to that deer. It, 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 there's ho- so much tied to it. It's, um, it's biotic and abiotic features uh, that occur on the landscape. Every single thing out there has an effect on something else. So habitat is just the accumulation of all these different things that come together to produce vegetation structure, this and that, that whitetails and other species need throughout a given time to persist there. So I think animals. There are so many different types of animals. If you're improving the landscape, like the meadowlark is really cool, uh, bobwhite quail, really cool, painted bunting, really cool, eastern collared lizard, really cool, uh, whitetail deer, I mean... Who wouldn't love seeing a baby fawn or July rolls around seeing a fawn that's running around behind mama? They'd love that. Now, there's a lot of non-hunters that wouldn't like going to sit in a deer stand with you as you are harvesting a deer. So maybe there's other times, there's other activities you can do to bring them outdoors. Insects. You want to see a man nerd out? Take me to a field covered in monarch butterflies. I'll flat nerd out. <laughs> um, that's one of those, I feel like insects, pollinators, that's a great opportunity for a deer hunter to not talk about shooting deer, but to talk about the habitat improvements that's, that's attracted more pollinators. Right. And that could be, you know, monarch butterflies, native bees, the bumblebees or, or whatever, whatever other types of pollinators. So if you're doing a pollinator program, you talk about that more than that the fact that the reason you did it was to shoot deer. When, right. when it's you, 2019. When you go out to your field, your pollinator field that you've planted, take responsibility for what you're seeing because that field, as you're going out through it, should be alive and be buzzing. You should have so much insect activity in that field because of what you've done and what you've planted that you should pat yourself on the back and be proud of that because you're bringing all this life to these acres that, let's say, was an old pasture that was pretty much dead, 
Now you've got something that's alive and thriving. And take responsibility. Again, give yourself a pat on the back because you're making that habitat and that vegetation happen. And share that with people. It's 2019. And we lost 2 million hunters in five years. There's only like 6% of the population, I think, that's hunters or something like that. It's it's really low. Um, and But there are a lot of people that enjoy the outdoors that aren't hunters. But at the same time, it's going to take birders. It's going to take hunters. It's going to take bike riders. It's going to take people that like to camp and hike. Mm-hmm. It's going to take every single one of us to actually make a, an impact on the landscape to where we can become more self-sustaining, less erosion, better air quality, cleaner water. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take all of us joining together to do that. It's not If every hunter out there started doing this, it would still take more. Right, 100%. And so, like, it's going to take every single one of us to improve the air quality. Uh, and it sounds like, wow, that's very... You know, we're we're getting now, we're talking about air quality on a podcast where they could talk a lot about deer and habitat. <laughs> uh, the, even though this is a For Loved Land podcast, so we're talking a lot about farming and different things here. But when it comes to air quality, I don't think, you know, there may be other, there may be groups of people who aren't as concerned about it. But at the end of the day, you put somebody at the corner, they're going to be concerned about having clean air. If not, take them to a place where there is smog and air pollution and say, now do you care about it? Because I guarantee you they will. And this is a great opportunity for a hunter, a fisherman, a a farmer, a gardener to all have tidbits or information on what they do that's beneficial to the air quality to reach across the aisle to a person they thought they'd never agree with and say, you know, we agree on that. We both want cleaner air. This is how I'm doing it. How are you doing it? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very important. There's certain tidbits with that to always have something interesting to share with people to where they're intrigued and they're going to be involved in what you're doing or, or get involved on their own farm or public land, whatever it is. So you can use tidbits about photosynthesis and uh, basically uh, how it works. And, and Matt, you built it's, this slide. It's, so it's, it's, Photosynthesis sounds super, super complicated. All it is is just how plants utilize sunlight to make sugars to be able to grow. Like how crazy is that? They're using something that's millions and millions of miles away to take it in and produce something that's going to allow them to feed and grow them. So they're a producer, and that's so crazy and dynamic, but that has so much importance to all the other things that we've talked about. Share these tidbits about photosynthesis, how it plays a role, and why you care about it. The other person, again, across the aisle, if you will, is going to care about it just as much as you, but know your information, know where you get it from, let it be solid, and let people understand it. Pollination. One of the huge things right now that, I mean, government agencies are talking about it, environmentalists are talking about it, food people are talking about it. It's it's like one of the big things to life. Um, estimated that one thirty third of all food and beverages in is delivered by pollinators. I think it's that actually. I think it's supposed one, to be one third. One third, yeah. It looks like is you've got it as 
There's a double dash, so I'm guessing yep. it is one-third. One I believe it's one-third of everything we eat was created by pollination. That's an impressive number when you think about it. It is. If, if you don't care about pollination, you, you must not care about eating. Right. <laughs> you must not care about life. Um, and so, I mean, shoot, what did we eat tonight? We ate beef stir-fry. So we had broccoli, we had uh, peppers, and we had onions, and we had rice and, and beef. And I'm not sure what uh, – I know it is one-third because I know that vegetables are, are, are important need pollination and so uh, there's so much that there's goes on hundred thousand species of pollinators that's a large percentage of animals out there and it's not just insects and i think you there's know vertebrates mammals, when it comes to birds. that's where that's where we preach diversity so much because when you plant monocultures it may there may be a predator for that that landscape that 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 plant, let's say a Japanese beetle, is coming in and it's devouring one of our species, uh, one of our plants, or a food plot, and we're like, ah, why can I do? Well, if you plant a diversity, you're attracting other species of insects that may predate on that Japanese beetle, um, or whatever other insect you're dealing with. But if we're all if we're stepping away from nature, and we're planting monocultures. That's when we start creating some problems. Now, I know that crop farmers, a lot, they're planting a soybean field, uh, corn field, cotton field, whatever. But there's a lot of guys that are starting to now try to increase and and add diversity to those crops to where they can fight some of those natural um, or some of those uh, predators or some of those problems by bringing in predator species of those other species uh, of those other bugs so definitely something to consider and and is a great talking point with almost any group endless facts about pollination that can get people's heads just spinning and how complex it is so i'm i'm glad to hear that because i've been in an all-out war with those japanese beetles in here all week (laughs) yeah (laughs) and ladybugs in here right yeah (laughs) so We've got non-game species we can talk about. So, as a hunter, let's just let's just put on the hunter helmet right now and say, okay, I'm a hunter, uh, but I want to do something to make. I want to create better bedding. So, I'm doing a full-fledged glade restoration in southern Missouri, or in Oklahoma, um, or or Arkansas, and I'm trying to do a full-fledged. Now, these species are, I believe, they're species of concern, but. There's a you can do a lot of glade restoration, which is the habitat for this species, eastern collared lizard, aka the mountain boomer. And this this in, or <laughs> this insect, this lizard can be up to like twenty some inches long. Really? You didn't have I know you've never seen those in Wisconsin. They Definitely not. Down. Yes. But did you know we had something like that in North America? No, I did not. It looks like a tropical iguana. It does. With a coloration. But and they are, we see them in Missouri. Saw them in Oklahoma. That's They're impressive. Here. Yes, they are a really, really cool. And, and the coloring can um, can change because I'll, I'll show you another picture of some that are just incredible. Eastern Colored Lizards. Uh, they're, one of the f- they're, they're an actual lizard that cannot regenerate its own tail. So like a lot of the little ones you played with as a kid – you, their tail would fall off, and you're like, oh, that's that's interesting. Well, it grows back. Not with these. Yeah, the little anoles or whatever. So, like, look at the, some of the color. Like yeah, turquoise with orange and yellow. and It's a gorgeous 
But, but at the same time, the importance is you're creating these glades that you have a purpose for, you know, maybe better nesting, better brood, um, you know, forage, foraging location or better bedding. But, hey, at the same time, you're drastically improving the habitat uh, for a mountain boomer. It's super easy. Mm-hmm. Non-game species, but they have importance. Scissor-tail flycatcher. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Never heard of her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Never heard of her. her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Scissor tail flycatcher. I remember the very first one. I can take you to the spot where I saw the very first one in my life. I was a like eight year old boy, and we were were like eight ten inches long. The very like the V for those listening. Google it. Scissor tail flycatcher, and these are planes. Wood grassland, grassland yeah. type bird, uh, and that's why I never <laughs> saw him as a kid because I grew up in the in the woods, and uh, we were playing. Uh, my brother was playing in, in west of Springfield, Missouri, out at kind of the base of the plains, and this thing flew over, and I thought, oh my gosh, it's got like trash stuck to it. That's part of its tail, and uh, but it's called scissor tail flycatcher. So in my head, I'm, you're like thinking about. A flycatcher, and you're like scissor tail flycatcher. So is it like catching catching flies with its tail, like scissors? <laughs> is that why? Uh, it's not, by the way, but uh, definitely an interesting and at the same time a very beautiful bird. Uh, obviously, being a grassland type bird, they're on the decline. But 33 percent, believe it is, since 1966 decline. So you're looking at that. That bird, and you're going, oh man, it's on a, de- a decline. I'm planting grasses because I want better bedding. But you go to a person who's a birder, and you say, we're planting these grasses because there's species here that are of concern, and we'd like to bring them back. Um, that's why you haven't ever seen them because they're down in Texas and Oklahoma and Western Missouri and Kansas. Next one, Eastern Towhee. Pretty beautiful bird. Looks like a cross between a robin and a red winged blackbird. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even a uh, kind of a, a cousin of the Oriole um, because of the coloration. Very cool bird. It's a woodland type bird. Shrubby backyards or thickets. I saw some Forced in Oklahoma um, just this past week. But it's another bird that, that if you're doing habitat work to bring back more shrubs and grasslands, there's a good chance you might see them if you're in that, if, if you're in that bird's range. No, no surprise, 49% decline since 1966 yes this Um, is a cool bird right here loggerhead shrike kills its prey and spears it on thorns and barbed wire insects will catch insects and spear it eat it off the thorn pretty cool isn't that cool you ever seen one of those i have not well decline by 76 percent guess we're kind of in southwest southwest uh Wisconsin, so decline of seventy six percent, which goes back, Casey, to what we talked about. What's in Southwest Wisconsin? Yeah, grasslands. Grasslands. Yep. That's where you find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of so there's four species there that you're never going to hunt them, but at the same time, you can bring a person into the outdoors. For example, you see one in your farm, you go back and you talk to a birder who's an environmentalist who who may be an anti hunter, but you tell him you're seeing them on their property. That might be a connection there to where now you realize, hey, I'm interested in some of the same things you are. Let's work together to to improve the landscape. And so 
basically when it comes to um, when it comes to the overall land management. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. We'll talk about it at the end of the podcast, at the end of the slideshow. Conservationist, environmentalist, naturalist, hunter, preservationist, farmer, and a gardener. Which one are you? Just Every about one all of them. them. That's right. Horrible gardener, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll give it a try. You're still a gardener, and and that's how we are. And like, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you want to label yourself as. You're all of them, or you can fit into some portion or category. That's the common ground that we need to find. That we need to share. We need to talk about what we're doing out here on the landscape. And loving on the land, everyone can relate to. Most definitely. I mean, I think that as as hunters, environmentalists, you know, conservationists, the easiest way to have the discussion with people is just to simply lay out what you do from a day-to-day basis as a land manager or explain what all that entails. Because yeah. really the releasing of the arrow or the firing of the, of the shot is one one-hundredth of the things that we do on a yearly basis you know most of those experiences are two minutes to five minutes in length but there's 364 other days out of a year that preparations are occurring to make something like that happen Mm -hmm. and that's what makes a big difference not the taking of one animal it's a dandelion in a yard is the hunt it's showy it catches your eye it may annoy some people but there's a whole lot more stuff going on in the yard or taking place in the in the occurrence of a year in that yard. But it's still there. And that's how hunting is to me. It's not it's not the most important thing. Definitely not the most important thing. But it is a highlight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 helpful. I mean to just have that discussion with anybody. I mean, my girlfriend started off had not hunted before. Mm-hmm. Didn't know a lot about it. I mean, honestly, and now um, she has, she's hunted. She's been hunting with me a lot. And, cool. and I mean, I feel like I did it a little wrong because I didn't expose her to what I do on a d- everyday basis. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I made that mistake of just going out and, and harvesting an animal. And, um, so because of that, a lot of it's lost, right? Everything is sweeter when you work for it. Oh yeah. I mean, very simply, much but deeper appreciation for things. Exactly. So, the the sit and shoot thing I think was lost a little bit and I think I mean there was definitely some tears shed at the end of that little <laughs> endeavor which ended up not being as bad as I thought it was but yeah. I mean I think when you sit back and look at how to introduce someone whether that be a child a first time hunter or even just someone to try to draw over to realizing they don't have to go out and actually hunt but I would I appreciate that other people's beliefs and the way sure. and the reasons why sure yeah. i just would you know it would be nice if more people would look at it from the other side of the coin mm-hmm. yeah you know mm-hmm. i don't care if you ever go out and shoot an animal in your life or harvest an animal or do anything but realize how much time energy and and love that yeah. you know blood sweat and tears gets put into this and, and how much how big of a benefit big picture not just food plots and killing but big picture overall what really it really entails and yeah. i think like you guys have said on here it, it would it would open a lot of people's eyes yeah absolutely absolutely and, i agree and that's why dynamic you know these land transformations and doing what you do is important to share because it's not just simple it really has a big impact so here's a question to wrap this podcast up 
Do you still have remorse when harvesting an animal? Some, yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the remorse side is is obviously you work very hard for something, and no matter what that is, I don't care if you're, you know, an athlete. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of people that win an Olympic gold medal are shedding tears at the end of it because it's a, it's it or you know any sport for that matter um, being successful in it. There's always that. Oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe that just happened. I'm super excited, but also on the other side of the coin, you know, you're taking a life ultimately and something you've worked very hard to achieve. Yes. Fortunately for us, we we try to grow these deer up to a healthy age before mm-hmm. harvesting them. And a lot of times that creates a history because yes, sure. you're trying to grow and manage these herds. And, and then you, some people go as far as naming the deer. And yeah. I, I know you guys name the deer. We do. And and, and and you almost – then you start you, you start monitoring them through trail cameras and you start noticing personality traits. Correct. Yeah. And then it's got a name, a personality, a history – Yep. And it's like, it's I'm going to be sad to see this deer go. Yes, and it's it's a very serious thing. And I don't think – I was reminded of that through taking my girlfriend out mm, about yeah. how, yeah. you know, the you know, and which was good for me. I mean, definitely. but, but emotionally there is a, a tie there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just it's, – it's like anything. So always, I mean, any animal that I harvest, whether it be a doe or, you know, a fully mature animal, there's always a little bit of, oh, you know. Yep. But, you know, and that that just goes back to, again, the complexity of, hey, you know what? This is wise management of, of a renewable resource. This is what I'm doing. Uh, and I know that it's necessary for me to do it or someone else to do it, but um, it's it's part it's part of it. It's right. It's part of managing the land. But it's definitely necessary. I it mean, is. it's just. It, it absolutely is. It's the, the thought of not doing it and not managing the land. And thinking about the disease that could take place and the and the horrific death that they may face because of that, correct? Because of me not doing something or using this renewable resource, really, it, it, it creates a a much more gut wrenching problem right. than the idea of just or the action of just pulling the trigger or release to harvest this animal. Now we're getting to actually take the meat from that animal, honor that animal, and take it back to our family to feed our families to where there's always there's a this cycle. cycle. Yep, and and so the reason I ask that is I struggled as a kid harvesting animals uh, to getting into hunting to, to a point where it was kind of like, I don't know if I really like this because, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is an animal that's just stinking beautiful and I'm not sure I like this idea of shooting it. Right. And as I got a little older, it was like, man, you know, you, you, growing up on the farm, you see what happens to in nature. And you're like, whew, that animal was not used by me, my, the meat or whatever. It got hit by a car or coyotes ran it down or, or it, there was not enough food. So survival of the fittest, it didn't make it. And it's like, whew. Hunting is a must, in my opinion, and it it, it may be a, a a death because of me, but at the same time, it's a quick death. It's an ethical death, and it and the the animal is honored and used. Right, and as informed and as seriously that as we take this sport or pastime, whatever you want to call it, 
we know how many deer need to be harvested to keep the herd healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're just at that level now where a lot of people are, and I think a lot yeah. of people are at that level where they have a rough idea of their buck-to-doe ratio and how many deer they are supporting on their property. So if you know how many deer are there and you know how many deer should be there, if you're exceeding that amount, you have a conservationist right. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, your it's obligation. obligation to exactly to uh, to go ahead and harvest animals to manage the property properly. I'll say something too. It's uh, some people look at hunting as unethical, but at the same time, I feel like it's unethical to not. be a hunter and not manage the herd to a point where they get so overpopulated that they're having trouble surviving. And and I, I feel like that's a big problem I'm seeing is, you know, in areas where hunting isn't allowed and they're letting the populations grow and grow and grow and traffic, auto traffic uh, accidents are increasing and, and there's less forage available and winter kills are higher. It's like, that's not ethical at all. That's actually horrible what those animals are going through. Yes. And I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, deer are incredibly hardy. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're just, what they can weather is incredible. Yes, and so, but doesn't mean we need to test those limits. No, either. no, yeah. no. I mean, and that's why that's why you can't afford not to. You know, Absolutely. you have you have to manage because if you don't, they will breed themselves into mm-hmm. the point where, like you, as you said, disease. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, we see that we see that on the landscape today. Yes, and we and certainly if do. you unfortunately if you've been in an area that has experienced that, you know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So most people have not. But I can guarantee you, as and, and I will say this, those harvests aren't. aren't subjective. Correct. There's not one person consciously making the decision. Disease, right. d- disease doesn't do that. Correct. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Casey, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Very in depth. Most of the time when we have somebody coming on, there's a lot of laughs, there's a lot of jokes, but this time it was pretty serious. We got <laughs> in deep, buttoned him up. Yep. But uh, appreciate you guys having me. You yeah. Bet. Yeah, it was definitely fun and uh, no definitely a topic that you'll probably hear us talk more and more on as we progress and, and, and continue to grow and bring on other people because this is something that's so important to us and is very important in, in this day and age. So, And I'd like to say, yes, we, we shared this Quail Forever state meeting, but we'd love to share this message other places. So there's those opportunities. Let us know. We'd be happy to, to present this um, elsewhere too because we're, we're passionate about it. I hope everyone can tell that. Um, but yeah, we'd, we'd love those opportunities. And there was another thing I was going to say here. Whenever you hear this podcast, please share it on your Facebook page or share it with us and tag us in it or, and then, and give us an idea of what you feel these groups best represent you as a person. Is it your naturalist, environmentalist, conservationist, hunter, farmer, gardener, preservationist? Whatever it is, share that with us, what you feel like you are, what you qualify for, what your interests are. So, anyway, guys, Matt, you got anything to add? Be bold in your belief. And uh, I guess with that being said, we'll catch you guys next week. See you.